You're listening to Matters of Engagement, a podcast examining issues at the intersection of health, healthcare, and society. I'm Jennifer Johannesson. And I'm Emily Nicholas Angle. Hey there, Jennifer here. I'm hosting solo for this episode because we're turning our focus to a research project in which Emily is actually part of the leadership team. You will be hearing from her later, just not in the hosting role. So let me first say that this research project we're about to talk about is kind of complicated. I am going to give you a brief overview because it's important for context, but honestly, the details of the project are not really what this episode is about. Instead, our intention is to showcase a number of different perspectives about the use of patient partners within a federally funded healthcare research project. You're going to hear from two of the project's researchers, two patient partners, they actually call themselves Lived Experience Advisors, or LEAs, and of course, Emily, who helped to bridge communication between the two groups. Now, what's really interesting about this project in particular is that it studies the behavior and communications of physicians and other clinicians when prescribing opioids and antibiotics. Super relevant to patients potentially, but the actual subjects of the study are clinicians and not patients. Now that's interesting because the funder, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research or CIHR, well, they require this project, like most others they fund, to have patient partners. So fair enough in principle, But how should a project like this that focuses on clinicians actually utilize those patient partners? Now that the project is wrapping up after several years, we wanted to know a few things. How were the patient partners actually used? And how did everyone feel about it? Was it helpful? Worthwhile? And what did the lived experience advisors think? So that's really what this episode is about. Now, Let me just say a few words about the study, and then we'll jump right in. So this project is what's called an innovative clinical trial, which means that it uses methods alternative to more traditional randomized control trials. The research had two streams, both related to primary care, one focused on prescribing opioids and one on prescribing antibiotics. Now, both of these are areas where there can be serious impacts at the individual patient level, but also in terms of public health more broadly and particularly with opioids, defining exactly what appropriate prescribing looks like is really tricky. And primary care physicians aren't always aware of or maybe just aren't following the most recent evidence-based guidelines. So this project explored if and how some specific interventions could shift prescribing behavior towards established best practices. Okay, so that was the project. And I think in that context, it's reasonable to ask, what exactly is the best role for patients? Well, it's hard to say definitively. Funders like CIHR often require patient involvement, but very little direction is provided beyond general frameworks and guiding principles. Often project teams just have to sort things out on their own. So we're curious to find out how this one particular project handled it. We're going to hear first from the principal investigator, Dr. Noah Ivers. He's a primary care physician and researcher at Women's College Hospital in Toronto. We'll also hear from Celia Lahr. She's an implementation scientist and health services researcher on the project. We're also going to hear from Barbara Sklar and Michael Strange, the Recruited Lived Experience Advisors, or LEAs. Then, finally, you'll hear my interview with Emily, whose official role was lead LEA. As always, you can check the show notes for links and more details. Okay, let's get started. Here's Dr. Noah Ivers. My research generally is about um, trying to improve quality of care and doing trials of interventions aiming to do that. And so when we're trying to improve quality of care, typically, you know, the target of my interventions that we're testing, the target is is actually clinicians. Uh, Like I'm trying to change clinician behavior so that Patients get, you know, the right care more, more of the time. So then the question arises, how do we include patients in a useful way in how we're developing interventions that um, actually target clinicians? We thought, okay, if we're going to craft things that helps, for instance, family docs talk to patients about antibiotics, we better, we better have some patients to talk to about how we go about doing that, like what, what, what it is that we tell family docs to say to patients or what resources we provide them to give to their patients. 
I mean, it just stands to reason that, you know, we should have a way of patients sort of vetting that and, and so on. Right. So Noah shared his rationale for why including patients may be helpful, and it's to get their feedback on specific materials and resources. But he does also see value in having patients involved for more general reasons. So th- there were some technical things that we needed patients to do. And, and then there's the sort of, I would say, more usual things that we wanted patients to play a role in, which is sort of, let's make sure we're, you know, thinking about outcomes the right way, uh, for instance. And, you know, there's the role that patients have in keeping us sort of grounded and not sort of navel gazy by, by, by having them in the room. You know, you tend to focus on what matters and... Uh, that sort of thing. Noah's describing here a common assumption that including patients is both necessary and important. But of course, there's always the context to consider, whether it's particulars of the project, timing of the project phases, or even the personalities of those involved. Celia Lar, one of the researchers, describes some of the logistical considerations. So one of the additional complexities of this was that there's two streams of work. Um, So one related to antibiotic prescribing and one related to opioid prescribing. And we had to figure out the streams within both of those and then realizing that they ended up coming together. Um, So the plans that were in place for each stream um, changed. (laughs) So I didn't feel as much pressure to make sure that we were always really actively engaging well, lived experience advisors in some of the early phases of the work, because I knew that they were very technical, very behavior change heavy, and there wasn't really a clear way to be able to engage them other than keeping them updated, having some conversations. But that was kind of okay, because there was also the opioid stream that was happening, and we knew the interviews with patients of the physicians was coming. So I knew that there would be a really strong component of patient engagement that made a lot of sense and where people could be involved. And then we had to figure out the new plan. Noah continued on to describe how COVID impacted their project. The project was funded for four years and now we're into like year six because of COVID. And so we had this longitudinal relationship with our sort of patient partners develop. And also, you know, both because of COVID and changes in the healthcare system and and even prior to that changes with our stakeholders and how we had to adapt what our projects looked like, there was always, you know, a need to adapt what the project plan involved and therefore trying to keep, to some extent, our patient partners up to speed on what the project plan was and in which exact ways they could contribute there was a lot of adjustment over time and a lot of figuring out as we go. And uh, I, I hope a lot of learning, but that's part of what this podcast I think is for, is a chance to really reflect on what, what have we learned and what ought we do do different. Throughout our conversations, I noticed just how much effort was made to keep communications alive in the face of all these changing conditions and project plans. So much so though, that it, sometimes seemed to me like that was kind of the focus of engagement overall, just to keep the LEAs in the loop. We talked a bit about why it was kind of challenging at first to figure out where patients might fit. The first phase of work for the opioid project didn't really involve patients. It was document analysis in a very specific way. Um, So the conversations were more about the antibiotic project had a bigger priority at that at that point. Um, so it was kind of balancing out some of those those aspects. And when the antibiotic project didn't have as much um, anymore and more of the emphasis went on to the time for, for the opioid project. There was a limited amount of time, a little bit about a budget, and we needed to prioritize people's time. Uh, and I also think it really comes to the people that you're working with. In previous podcast episodes, we've had lots of conversations with some very experienced patient partners, and they've pointed out to us that perhaps patients could and even should be involved in more technical activities, like document analysis. I mentioned that to Celia. Couldn't the LEAs have been trained in more of these technical tasks? Like, I 
honestly can't remember if we asked people if they wanted to be in document analysis, but also recognize that it would take, like I got trained on how to do that. Um, if there was somebody that was interested in that, there might've been more conversations, but I also don't think we would have had the budget to be able to do the amount of time that was needed for that. Right, so this is pretty common. Lots of ideals and aspirations. But the reality is that, well, researchers have a lot of training. And enrolling people without that training, well, it might give different perspectives, but it also means you might have team members who aren't ready to jump into certain activities. Just because it's a funding requirement doesn't mean there's enough resources to integrate patient partners in an ideally fulsome way. Here's Noah reflecting on this tension. You hit the nail on the head, I think. Like what we asking patients to do versus what they have the expertise to do. And like, I don't want to waste anybody's time either. Some of it has become sort of just a, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, but that's not a good reason to do it. You know, I think the idea of having patients give input to things that patients are ultimately, you know, in, in an ideal world, going to be provided by their clinician to them in a consultation, like in helping us design those things. That makes perfect sense. You know, you you're building an artifact that patients are meant to interact with. Like you better get patients to, that's, that's just user-centered design, right? We had to have patient partners due to the requirements of the application that forced us into a box that wasn't necessarily totally right for all aspects of this particular project. There was a real limit to the amount of changes we were able to make in, in terms of like the intervention options to make a difference in these spaces, uh, antibiotic prescribing, opioid prescribing. In fact, the opioid prescribing, the intervention was already done. Like we were evaluating something that was already out there in the system. You know, if, if, if our patient partners could say something like, I really wish they had done it this way, be like, yeah, totally agree, <laughs> but we have no power. And even with the antibiotic uh, approach, because our goal was to, as written in the grant was to, you know, materials to clinicians, basically province-wide. And we achieved that the ability to like get down in deep about perhaps teaching clinicians to speak to patients in a certain way or bringing the patient voice as relevant to each each clinician it was limited and so when we came back to our lived experience advisors as we called them it feels problematic to say yeah i want your input but no i can't do that and no i can't, we can't do that either and you know it's like it's inappropriate yeah, Noah's really thoughtful in his contemplations. There's a healthy dose of uncertainty, even inner conflict. And no wonder, it can feel pretty confusing to know that you have to fulfill an expectation, but you're not really quite sure how to go about it. Let's turn to Barbara now. She's one of the LEAs on the project. And I think it's fair to say she's a little less conflicted. She knows why she's involved and how she wants to be engaged. Initially, when we first started out back 10 years ago or whenever, you know, as pioneers, nobody knew anything about using patient advisors, but suddenly the hospitals had all had to have patient advisors. Um, and so it was, like I say, it was like the Wild West, like no one really knew how to use the patient advisors. But the initial benefit was that the patient would, or the patient advisor or family member, whoever was involved in that particular, like I was, let's just say I was on a committee for um Oh, I've been on so many of them, uh, you know, harm and how to deal with uh, people who have been harmed by the system type thing, ethics, and safety issues, whatnot. Um, and the patient advisors are very helpful on that kind of committee because they told their stories about har being harmed by the system. And it helped the, the uh, staff to get a different perspective and to keep themselves grounded in what exactly they were doing and not making it so technical and so uh, protective, you know, it was, it changed the whole atmosphere. And it was, it was very helpful. But when you're doing research, research is not passionate. There's no emotion in research. You do the, you have a thesis, you do the work. It's like, it's just different. So the, the advisor doesn't, control the the project they just contribute in whatever way the researcher finds is necessary 
once you've set out the rules and you, you make sure that you engage your, your advisor and you tell them what's going on and you follow up and you do all that, there should be no obligation at all towards the patient advisor as far as taking on their opinions or you know, keeping them engaged. That's not what I find <laughs> to be the, uh, productive. So just to be clear, Barbara is contrasting patients volunteering on committees with being patient partners involved in research projects. Now, she mentioned research as not being an emotional endeavor. And certainly, while there are many aspects to research that are necessarily more detached and scientific, I would say the individual experiences of patient partners varies quite a bit. We've met lots of patient partners and also researchers who find research work to be quite emotional, emotionally rewarding, emotionally draining. People can be quite emotionally invested. Here's Michael. He's the other LEA alongside Barbara. I think part of my uh, interest in the whole thing was, was, was really selfish uh, because a number of years back, I had a, a couple of injuries, I guess it's over 20 years now, and it's trying to make sense of it all. And I found that being able to just say, well, this is what I've experienced. Uh, this is what I've discovered. This is what I've heard. This is what I've seen. This is what's happened to me. Not that it's right, not that it's wrong, but that, that's my perception of what's happened to me. Maybe that can help somebody else. And that's, that's kind of what it boils down to is just being able to share what, what I've seen. That was the whole, the whole real reason for me trying to get involved in this, and it, it, it still is. So Michael thinks of engagement primarily from the perspective of someone who wants to contribute and share. And it's also an opportunity for him to make sense of his own experiences. Now, whether his input gets used or actually sways opinion, it doesn't seem to be of pressing concern to Michael. I'm under no illusion that if I say, you know, something's blue and everybody else says it's pink, I don't expect everybody to suddenly come over to the blue side. I'm just, I'm just an opinion. I'm sort of offering one point of view and to expect whatever I say is going to bend opinion is going to shape policy. I hate to say this, but I think it's kind of ridiculous. I, I think somebody going in with the expectation that I will change policy, not you can give an opinion, you can say, well, out of, you know, I feel this way, a hundred other people might not. It's just, it's, it's, it's too much to expect a couple of people are going to make that much of a difference. You, you, you know, you said, say your piece and you hope that somebody's listened and, you know, they'll, they'll take it into consideration. There's a fairly clear and narrow scope here in Michael's mind as to how much influence he may or may not have. And Barbara agrees. As lived experience advisors, they believe they're there to lend a hand in whatever way the research calls for. And to expect more, in their opinion, seems unreasonable. You know, as far as using your, your patient advisors, it's at a very granular level. Like you, you know, they'll send me um, a questionnaire that they're planning to send out to 20, you know, doctors or whatever, like you were doing. And uh, it's a, it's like... If you were a patient reading this, would, how would you like to word it? Or what would you like to include in it or not include in it? Or, you know, that kind of thing. It's not so much that we're directly wanting to influence policy per se. It's kind of like the liaison between the outside world and the research world, trying to sort of make sure that the research world understands the where the LEA is coming from and vice versa. And that creates a better pro research project because like you, you know, with the doctor's letters, you know, they were, they were changed and reworded so many times to try to make it more, you know, inviting for, pay, for doctors to participate. Um, and the, so in that respect, Michael and I helped, I hope, in like some of the wording as far as, these letters are concerned or that kind of thing. It wasn't like we were sitting there uh, telling our story every day <laughs> or, or thinking we were going to change a policy tomorrow. Okay, so maybe you can imagine that not all patient partners feel this way. One of the challenges we had in making this episode is that Barbara and Michael's views on how patients ought to contribute to a project are not entirely aligned with what we've heard other patient partners say. We have had other guests who have very high expectations about how their input ought to be used. 
Now for Celia, this is an important consideration to think about, where and how the patient partners themselves want to be involved. When I'm working with with anybody new, um, like a new student or a new person that comes to the team, you're also trying to figure out what their what their interests are so that you can make sure that you direct projects towards their their work. Um, and I think I took some of that kind of approach that I use in other areas, like what are you interested in? What are the spots that you want to be involved with and seeing what makes, makes sense? Because I think people can also be more more engaged and more involved and provide more feedback on the areas that they're interested in and want to be able to to delve in a bit more. Um, So kind of balancing some of that out within the project as well, knowing there's specific times and places that is very clearly um, for a patient, but then also knowing the people that you're working with, what are they interested in? What are their um, ways that they want to be, um, be contributing? So I think it's some of the same, same approaches that I've used in other, other areas. So it sounds like there's some good alignment here between the leadership team and the LEAs. Celia and Noah, as researchers, are keen to provide opportunities for the LEAs to contribute in whatever way they want. And the LEAs themselves are happy to primarily respond to direct requests for feedback. But at the same time, Noah reflected on whether the required structure of having patient partners throughout the project was entirely necessary. And so I I think in an ideal world, a lot of what we could have achieved, we might have achieved simply by consulting ad hoc with relevant groups of patients uh, when needed, as opposed to having this kind of advisory structure on an ongoing basis where really there, the advice was difficult to operationalize. Uh, there was just so many constraints in this particular project. Constraints can be helpful, of course, because they help to delineate what's possible and can help to focus everyone's thinking. But Noah's comment is more about whether the requirement to include patients was appropriate in this context. Perhaps a more focus group type of arrangement would have served the project better. But it's also possible they wouldn't have received funding if that's what they'd initially proposed. It's a real dilemma faced by projects that receive CIHR funding. Barbara does a really good job of teasing out these tensions from her perspective. And when you're doing research, I think it has to be very rules-based. Like it can't be all over the place. You have to, every research project should use their patient advisors in the same way. There should be continuity in that regard. Because I think it's important for researchers and patient advisors to be separate uh, you know, like we always talk about them as patient partners, but we're not really partners in research. Research Researchers do the work. The patient, it sounds controversial, I guess, but my view, this is my view only, that patient advisors or lived experience advisors is what I prefer to say. Sometimes they're called patient partners in, in research, but they're not really partners. They they. Uh, contribute a great deal to the conversation and they tell their stories and they keep researchers focused on, you know, who they're researching, et cetera. But they're really not, um, we're not, um, we shouldn't be, you know, we have to be at arm's length from the research to keep it legitimate. You know, I was on a research project where uh, it was a system, system, systemic review. Is that what you call it? systematic review. And, uh, you know, they asked us to um, go through about 200 of these studies to pick out words, special words from each one. And, you know, that's a, that was a a big ask, you know, because that, you know, yourself that take a long time to do those things. And um, so it was not the appropriate use of a lived experience advisor. So Barbara has strong views about how LEA should be used in a project. She's not especially interested in participation for its own sake. She's also not particularly interested in being seen as an equal partner or co-researcher. But there is a lot of pressure to include patients in increasingly integrated and robust ways. I asked Noah how he thought about this and how the team had planned for including patients. I think, you know, to be honest, there was a lot of figuring out as we go. And, um, you know, I, I don't feel that terrible about that, to tell you the truth, because, like, you know, that 
it was emergent and it, that's the way it was. But, um, and, you know, there's learning in that regard. In this particular project, because of the nature of it, both the long longitudinal aspect of it, you know, many, many years, and also the aspect where, you know, the, the key, arguably the key users of the, you know, intervention being tested was not patients. They were sort of the, the distal sort of hopefully beneficiaries, but the key users was actually clinicians. There was this emergent process of figuring out how do we, how do we take advantage in a respectful way of the like input and advice that we can get from these people. So at the beginning of this project, especially, things were pretty hard to pin down and plans kept changing. But the project has been underway for a number of years now. So I asked Celia, what were the actual substantive pieces that LEAs were eventually able to support? Um, so there's three kind of areas that I, I think of to be able to answer that. So the first is being the very uh, obvious piece that we mentioned, where it's recruitment material, it's focus group questions um, that very much patient-facing piece. So there was a lot of contributions to those, helping to write letters, et cetera. The next one, which is where I think there was more learning on my perspective um, that I won't necessarily, um, like it doesn't change the results, but it changes the way that I speak about the results. So being able to talk about these complex concepts in a way that is understood um, and um, um, is clear. Like, can I present these in, this information in a way that somebody can then discuss, think about how do I tell that story and being able to tell that story to people that know enough about the project to be able to understand what it is, but also don't know the details of it so they can still be able to say whether it makes sense or not. Um, so we did a lot of calls of um, presenting back preliminary results, seeing how something got interpreted. So there's one example where we presented a bunch of um, quotes from physicians and the way that um, the others read those quotes was very different than the way that I did, um, which was really, really interesting to be able to know that that's the way that that quote could be interpreted. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody will interpret it that way, but to be able to have a different perspective on reading exactly the same words and knowing what comes out of it. Um, so that I'm able to keep that in mind when I'm presenting, when I'm writing these pieces to make sure that it's it's clear and acknowledges some of the other questions that might be raised by the same same point. We are going to carry on with Celia, but something occurred to me as I reflected on her comments, and it's that, well, in this project, there were only two lived experience advisors. Now, is that sufficient if what you're looking for are different perspectives? Perhaps. But I wondered how Michael felt. If he felt pressure, even just within himself, to somehow represent patients as a larger group. Well, I, I would hope that... Um policy changes, policy adjustments would be done by a, a much larger group than just a, a few individuals and that it would, uh, you know, require <laughs> a lot of research to, uh, uh, you know, to make such changes. I don't know how to address that. Yeah, it's a valid concern with no simple answers. Or maybe there's just many possible answers. Okay, back to Celia. She contemplates the value of including patients, not just in gathering data and information, but in the discursive encounters where perhaps new ideas and perspectives enter the mix in more <laughs> intangible ways. That was ways. really just around the conversations, like having all of these questions that got raised all the way along. And um, just Emily and I chatting about it is one thing, but being able to know all of the different ways that people want to be involved, previous experience, knowing what you're, what you're thinking about has informed the way that I do other um, other work and other work with patient engagement to be able to always question and always come back to making sure that it's, that it makes sense, that it works for that person, for that project, um, and not just because it says you have to do that in the funding application, but how can you really make that 
uh, beneficial for the people that the project is supposed to benefit. Okay, so we've spent a bit of time talking about the value of patient perspectives and the role of lived experience advisors in this project. But let's pivot slightly and think about things from a slightly different angle. The LEAs put a lot in, but what did they get out of it? For Michael, it's not only personally meaningful to give back and make sense of his own health-related experiences, he's also on a bit of a mission to counter some of the public messaging around opioid use. As you'll hear, Michael has lived experience with opioids and feels that public perceptions are a bit one-sided. I've become, in my little way, I, I've become quite, uh, I don't know what the word is, it's not upset, it's not angry, uh, disappointed, I suppose, in the news media about opioids. Um, I, I've been, uh, I'm, I'm a great believer in the medical profession, in, in the pharmaceutical, because uh, they've given me a life back. And uh, when I see the news media get on about opioids and the evil of them and everything else, it make, I just go nuts. So I've actually taken to writing letters, writing notes. Uh, I've, I've talked on a couple of radio pieces about the benefits of opioids. You know, take them as prescribed. They're not a bad thing. They're not an evil thing. They can really help some people. And uh, uh, I think the general population needs to know some things like that. Uh, and, and again, I, I, I never intended it to be that, but uh, it, it sort of is a, a way I seem to be going with things is just trying to educate people who don't know that here, here's something that, you know, I'm just a normal person, nothing special. And uh, I've got some issues. This is a drug that really works. It's not an evil drug. It's not a, not a bad thing. And I think researchers need to hear that too. You know, it's the smaller groups that are able to, uh, uh, you know, make the news media, news media's uh, influence more policy, influence people, influence my neighbors who don't know anything about the subject. You know, they hear all this bad publicity about it and they, they start to form opinions based on one side of the fence. They need to hear the other side. In putting this episode together, we thought this was a really important testimony to include. I mean, sure, it's interesting to hear people's stories, but it's also important to remember that patient partners or lived experience advisors, well, they have their own opinions and motivations, and they're not always disclosed in such forthcoming and honest ways. And Barbara also has her own motivations for being involved. I, I'm a people person, and I just, I, you know, and I, I really enjoy the meeting all kinds of people and getting their perspectives and talking and sharing and all that other stuff. That's just who I am socially and professionally. And I, yeah, I get a lot of benefit out of it. I, I think that um, I try to get, I try to give value to my, you know, invitation, you know, I respect the invitation and I try to give value to what I'm being asked to do. Uh, but I think I get a, a lot more out of it than they do in a way. <laughs> so I've met some really good friends. I mean, I've, over the years through it and opportunities also to, to, to contribute to some, you know, things that are important, like this project, like, you know, it's important stuff. And even though research sits on the shelf for like 10 years before, you know, somebody <laughs> remembers it, um, occasionally something happens with the good research and, you know, so you have to kind of keep optimistic about it and keep keep trying and uh, including as many people as you can. And I, I find the experience really good. I mean, there have been some committees that I've had to say, sorry, I'm busy, <laughs> you know, because uh, it also has to be a good um, environment. So after these discussions, I was left thinking about the fact that here we have two very experienced and mature advisors with particular preferences and expectations about how they want to be engaged. And we also have the researchers who are not only trying to just get the research done under challenging conditions, but they're also feeling their way through and they're not 100% sure about how to appropriately engage the LEAs. As Noah says, they're figuring things out as they go. Now, this is the kind of mix that could make things go off the rails pretty quickly, but it didn't, and that's due in large part to there being another person who bridged the two teams, and that's Emily Nicholas Angle, usually co-hosting with me. In addition to her work on the podcast, Emily is also an independent consultant and researcher who has worked with many Canadian institutions and organizations on their patient and family engagement initiatives 
including hospitals, government agencies, and research institutes. She was hired into this project early on to support patient engagement. So we're going to hear from Noah and then Celia, sharing their thoughts on Emily's role. So maybe we start by saying, like, in in my mind, Emily was like our, I think the name was like lead patient partner, but like in my mind, she was like like the, the intermediary between the research team and the research mission and the sort of the patient partners and lived experience advisors and all that they could bring to us. That kind of like adaptation over time was sort of something Emily really took on. So we should reflect back the question to her about what we, what we learned over time. For me, having, having Emily being that connection was a major factor in the, in the work that was done to be able to have somebody that um, could ask those questions because I don't feel as a researcher, I could always, especially at the beginning, wouldn't really know what questions to ask or know what, um, what to make of those, those meetings and having somebody that could be there, um, lead those discussions, making sure that each, um, person was involved and comfortable and, um, once we got a bit more into that groove, I think I got a bit more comfortable with being able to acknowledge some of those those bigger questions at the beginning and getting a bit more of that that structure going and also knowing that there was somebody there that could debrief, that could follow up on on ideas and making sure that somebody was okay, especially after if it was a somebody was talking about an experience that was particularly rough, it may not have always been appropriate from my side to be able to follow up, um, especially at the beginning. So having that somebody that was able to help navigate that process was a was beneficial for me. And I think it was beneficial for um, for Barbara and Michael as well. Yeah, both Michael and Barbara indeed found Emily's role beneficial. Michael shared how important it was for him to establish trust. I found it great. I found it everybody very supportive. Um, I have, we talked about before, way back in the beginning, you talked about, uh, you know, confidentiality, uh, you know, keeping things contained and uh, that put me at ease. Yeah, I have no, again, I just keep going back that if anything, what I've experienced, I mean, heck in life, Barbara too, I mean, everything, um, it's, uh, it may benefit somebody else down the road. And that, that's, that's the whole, as far as I'm concerned, that's the whole key, you know. In this project, Emily is playing a multifaceted role. She's the lead patient partner, she's a bridge between teams, and she's also been instrumental in developing and supporting the engagement strategy for the overall project. Lots of having to navigate relationships and interpersonal dynamics. Okay, but what about their actual subject matter contributions related to the research? Who decides what is relevant, reasonable, and actionable? I asked Noah. I think ideally it's the PI. I think in reality, in this project, it was sort of distributed, by which I mean, you know, Emily played a big role, um, the research coordinator on the relevant streams of work played a big role. And I sort of try to give my two cents when I thought I could be helpful. And to be honest, I'm not sure there's a right answer. Um, there's multiple ways to go about, you know, research methods uh, to answer a given research question. And they're, you know, depending on your approach to the world, like, you know, there can be multiple right ways to do it. Um, Maybe that's the case also for patient engagement. Right. So a bit of a moving target, and it sounds like context matters quite a bit. Celia also commented on the value of the role of lead patient advisor, particularly when research teams don't have a lot of experience collaborating with patients. I am seeing that kind of role coming out a bit more as one of the ways to be able to also potentially make people a little bit more comfortable um, in engaging in research when they know they've got a main contact point that that knows what's going on, that knows how to be able to do that um, and kind of lead people into, into the, into the work. And as, as somebody gets more comfortable with that role, that bridge person may not be as, as necessary or as, as needed if, if both lived experience and researchers all have done this work a lot before, um, then that bridge person may not be as required, but in, especially in projects where there's um, a bit less experience, then I think that role is really, really beneficial. 
Celia went on to wonder how the process might be improved. I'm hoping that there can be more recognition of that development that's um, getting people people connected, but also acknowledging that that's not always possible. So what are some of the other approaches that we can make sure that people's perspectives are being included in a way that makes sense for them, for the project, for the work that's being done, without just trying to fill in the box that says, you must have, um, have this. Noah also wondered about ways to engage not only patients, but also other stakeholders in more relevant and appropriate ways. It's inappropriate these days to say, like, there are areas where, you know, patient input is less relevant. But surely there are areas where patient input is less relevant. (laughs) And, uh, you know, some aspects of this project probably met you know, the one end of that spectrum and other aspects, the other end. And and I think one of the hard things about managing the patient engagement aspects of the project was like figuring out what to do with those different ends of the spectrum. I guess my hope is that we might think about all the relevant users, as it were, in that process. So in, in my research, that's predominantly clinicians but not just, you know, I mentioned a case earlier where was it like clinical managers uh, played a huge role. Like moving forward, I hope we can really engage with like, why are we doing this and help support, I guess, PIs to, to do their work in a way that aligns with the answer to that question. We don't want to tick boxes. We ought not to just tick boxes. We'll finish this segment with Michael who offers some insights into his own journey as a lived experience advisor. I am proud to be part of this group. I really am. It's, uh, I've, I've come away from a couple of sessions, a little emotional, always with a, a changed perspective. perspective. That's a good thing. You know, um, I have a friend of mine who's, who's big on um, uh, youth recidivism. Uh, and and uh, I heard the other day that uh, one lawyer was saying that, uh, you know, the especially the male brain isn't fully developed until about 25 years old. And I've always been a very law and order guy, you know, string them high kind of thing. And, uh, you know, listening to all these people the last few years, you know, changed me a bit. And that's a good thing, you know. And I find the same thing with this, all the people here, the, the group, you know, like I go in with one, I, I'm honest with my opinions, what I've seen, what I, what I, what I think I've seen, you know, uh, but uh, when I hear other opinions and other people talk, I go, hmm, okay, that's a valid point. I should maybe think about that more carefully, you know? Uh, so it makes me grow. It makes me into a better person, I hope. A little bit at a time, <laughs> but a better person. So typically at this point, you would hear Emily and I chat over the themes and insights inspired by the conversations with our guests. But instead, I actually interviewed Emily as a guest. She had a chance to listen to the recorded conversations with the other team members, and then we sat down to talk it over. One thing I'm curious about is after you listened to all four of them together talking, do you have any sort of overall comments about what you heard? Well, one was sort of how straightforwardly Barbara and Michael seemed to approach the engagement work and how kind of sure they felt in their own purposes and their own wants to engage and feelings about it, and then how many questions we as researchers had. And I'll be transparent, Barbara also raised that with me having read the transcript herself, which was like, didn't realize how much people were confused by all this and like how much thinking was going on (laughs) behind the scenes. Um, So that certainly was raised for me. And I think the other thing that inevitably was raised is did I do a good job of this? Given my own questioning, my own conflicts about the purposes of engagement and yet having real people involved and facilitating it, where did I sit with how it came out? I resonated with all of it, but I didn't feel connected to either side entirely. So I certainly felt somewhere in the middle. I was also left with how (laughs) ambivalent I guess I was feeling about things. How did it sit with you to hear Michael and Barbara 
talk about how pivotal your role was, like how important it was, and then also to hear Noah and Celia talk about, for different reasons, I suppose, like how how important both your role was and also um, they felt that there was good value in having LEAs involved. Did that resonate with you or did you feel like, eh, well, I mean, maybe they would say that, but I don't think so, or like, did it, or did it validate something for you? Absolutely. I think I was sort of grateful for how thoughtful they all were. Certainly, though, it didn't fully satisfy my, as much as I thought everybody felt satisfied maybe with how it went and felt, you know, good about it. It didn't fully satisfy my own internal like conflicts about whether what I felt like the purpose of improving the project from the perspective of understanding or improving things sort of for patients or making it more patient patient centered or making it so that patients had been included some of the loftier goals of engagement those all still feel to me like completely inaccessible goals anyways like regardless of Mm. what you do with the project but I think particularly because there's also no there's no sufficient I suppose it sometimes feels like in engagement where there's always more you could have done and there's always questions about whose voices are there. I, I still am left with the idea that we had two individuals and we talked about this shaping a project, which may have impacts for other patients. And although we did do other, as we called it in our paper, like a mosaic approach where we, we talked to other councils and I looked at literature around language used in material, particularly aimed at people who had dealt with opioid use disorder, which had been developed by people with lived experience. Like I tried to use all these other approaches, but I think that feeling of kind of insufficiency always lives within me. I mean, having known you for a while now, like Mm -hmm. I, I know that your brain goes a mile a minute, right? So in, in a project like this, where there's a bit of like that nebulousness and there's a lot of moving parts. You're trying to like contain something that's not containable, you know, your own self doubts and all of that, that there's a kind of missing piece around like just really appreciating your own abilities in that space, I guess. Like I, I think the fact that they all found it successful speaks volumes to how you were able to manage and and maybe it's also like actually managed, like in terms of your skills and your understanding, but maybe it's also because of your transparency and your accessibility and, and the way that you can convey your own uncertainty that maybe makes people feel safe. So like there's a bunch of things, I think, that contribute to why they would all feel like it's successful. Yeah, absolutely. Some of our everyone's best qualities or qualities come with multiple sides, which you don't get to be. Mm-hmm. accessible and thoughtful and if I'm described that way and not somewhat overly perhaps conscientious and anxious. Like does this come up in other t- realms of your own mm-hmm. either working life or personal life all the time or is it only if if there isn't a lot of structure and you're sort of left to kind of figure it out is that where this gets mm-hmm. heightened all for the you? Time. All the time. It's all the time. Yeah. Even, so even uh, even if there was like a manual that said this is how you do it this is this is like a b c d you would still be questioning your own okay that's things? fair i mean like let's say i had to just fill in a database with numbers and yeah. like i like i like math and calculus i tutor calculus and when i tutor that like i'm not thinking mm-hmm. <laughs> wait but should i have approached it differently uh, but I will have the meta aspect of thinking about the way I taught or all of the options for how I approach a person and what comfort level they felt. And I've always probably been overly concerned with how other people feel. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, I think by nature of this role, something that makes it distinct um, and that is an interesting aspect of engagement generally is a lot of people who do this engagement work come because their experience, you know, I have experience with health research and my background is med sci, but I really got into this because I had been an engaged patient and I had mm-hmm. lived experience and I had all this stuff. And so I had this other, to use the word meta again, meta level of ex- 
expertise, perhaps, which was I had been in a lot of engagement. So I had the lived experience stuff, but then I'd also done and been involved with a lot of engagement. So just through that lived experience, had a certain set of skills or at least knowledge. And so when I come to do this kind of work, it's personalized in a way, perhaps that, like I said, when I tutor calculus or when I, it's just about my knowledge base. It's not Mm -hmm. about who I am, what I've experienced, but by definition, well, maybe not by definition, but one of the beneficial factors of me being in this role is that I am clear with people that I've had this lived experience, that I've, I get what it sort of feels like, or we can share things about our personal experiences. And I'm not, not talking about my own health. Um, I'm quite open about, you know, the issues I've had with my health and things like that along the way. And that is part of why I'm there. And so whenever that's the case, I think navigating that ends up being a lot of levels of thought. Mm-hmm. And for your own protection too, ends up being a lot of levels of thought because <laughs> you're in a sense using yourself to help other people feel better, using your experience and also trying to recognize what that, how that benefits you or what the um, therapeutic effects of that are and why you want to do it. And also putting certain boundaries up Mm-hmm. So that you're not taking it too far, but you're also, um, and so I think, you know, just this type of work has that built in. I'm sure some people maybe don't think that way, but at the same time, it sort of feels like it's a delicate dance. When I used to do, let's say, user-centered design work, that felt much less fraught in the sense it was clear that people were being interviewed or talked to in a focus group or like, this is why they were there the idea was to shape that one piece of material and nobody had any feelings about like developing relationships and and having feelings of partnership. So I sort of flipped there, but, but a few things I think are built into a few vaguenesses and, and complexities are built into this work. Mm-hmm. So it's me personally, but I also do think to an extent to navigate this work. And I think this is what we tried to get into the paper that we wrote. So hopefully complement this is that that was one of, I think the discoveries we had along this was, this was the first time I'd articulated some of those things or, or spoken aloud with the group about what those things that felt conflicting or sometimes just wrong or uncomfortable. And we discussed them and everyone had quite different thoughts often on it. Um, whether it was, you know, whether someone should be compensated or what it meant to represent a group or whatever that was, it was so beneficial to us as a team to actually learn what everyone else felt. And I know it ameliorated for me this issue of feeling like, oh, it's, if it's being unsaid, it's like I'm lying. It's mm. like, it's like I'm, I'm, there's like a ruse going on and they don't know that I'm just kind of like, I guess I'll just do it anyway, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but we are we talked about it and everyone knew that I was, you know, trying to muddle through and that they were kind of muddling through with me and the process of discussing it was part and parcel of what made our engagement work feel more meaningful. And so we developed these kind of, I almost feel like it was like a journal club or thought sessions where we would check in about everything, update and maybe do a, a task, but then we'd set aside time about, you know, what does it mean to evaluate this? Or should we be, you know, doing formal evaluations? And what are we evaluating? And what, because it's just us here making these decisions, you know, what does this actually represent? Are we lay people? Are we patients? And, you know, who's missing and and all of those things. Um, And even just conversations that were brought up by the patient partner or the, excuse me, the lived experience advisors about how they felt about generally the project so far. And that would lead to a sort of some discussions about. So that space, I would say, was certainly not wasted and something I kind of advocate for more now in a lot of the work I do. Is this um, unusual for you? The degree of dialogue that you had with in this this project? For sure. I mean, generally, you're just not afforded the time because as we've talked about before, like often it's very task oriented, this work. And because people are kind of, it's not volunteering their time. Certainly this is not what they do. Uh, so if you involve them, there's talking about a meaningful engagement. What's the impact of what you did? Having agendas, you're working with researchers who usually have very tight timelines too. 
Um, so to just book discussion, I, I'm sure people, you know, do book discussion meetings on topics, but I, I think in my experience so far, it's usually been on the subject matter. So like, let's have someone come in and tell us about drug policy, or let's talk about, I don't know, behavior change theory or something like that, so that we have better understanding of the material. Does it feel like, um, well, I'll, I'll give an observation maybe, and it's that a lot of the talking that you've just described seems fairly self-referential, like it's its its own little feedback loop around engagement. It, it was actually like, I don't know that this will be in the podcast, but it wasn't entirely clear to me that even Noah and Celia felt like, I felt like they were both kind of grateful that there was something to say about it, which was, you know, the dialogue and Emily, and it was all like, everyone did their best and we're learning as we go. And it's like, it's like, that's sufficient as, as <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. a lot of talking about, about talking about it. <laughs> and I, yeah. I don't, I still don't quite get like, do I you... should clarify. I'm not saying like every week we should sit down and have these discussions, but mm -hmm. we incorporated them like in included in meetings or when it was sort of relevant to something we were doing. And I don't think that always those kinds of conversations and some of just the logical inconsistencies had been more put out in the open. So it was less of like, let's just like, like let's ruminate on it. And more of just like, huh, actually interesting from a pragmatic mm -hmm. point of view, like that actually, yeah, logically doesn't make sense or maybe we should think about that. Um, so I think that was helpful. I also think there were t tangible outputs from what we did from the work. And I think, like you said, everyone was grateful for that. Like we definitely met all our deliverables and the only thing that we couldn't do, which was the patient interviews was like logistically impossible, mm -hmm. um, not for lack of trying. Yeah. And we shaped some things and, you know, everyone felt satisfied with that. But I completely take your point and, and agree and would have to add it to my like 14th level of meta thinking, which was I'm being very you get like self-centered about this whole thing, like making it about the way I'm thinking about it or my own concerns or. I had a lot of times where I'm like, Emily, just get on with it. Mm -hmm. this, this is a lot of you just reflecting. So there's somewhere in between. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that. Yeah. And one thing that stands out in what you're saying, and I think I hear it otherwise too. So it's not just you, but the sense of um, like the building of trust, the community aspect, I guess, of trying to create a kind of a bubble of sorts where people feel like they can share and um not feel judged and all of that stuff it it seems slightly incongruous to have that perspective on something that for for Barbara and Michael in this project they both talked a lot about the practical aspects that you know they weren't sitting around telling their stories they were like they were there to help and to support what the researchers wanted and to vet things and look things over so what where do you see this all this dialogue fitting in it's dialogue and also just the effort that you would put in to build some sort of sense of common purpose. Is that even necessary? Like, how is this, how is this different than some other just task within the team? You know, like why, why would, why would trust be an important thing to build amongst the lived experience advisors as opposed to the whole team or between researchers or like, you just don't hear talk about that. Um, well, I do feel like it was about the whole team. Okay. So it was about how we all interacted. I didn't mean to imply that it was trust only between the, it was like how we all work together. And I'd say that developed over time. And is that because it's a kind of interdisciplinary thing? Like you've got lay people, like you'd have to sort of create a, a container for everybody. Is that yeah, part like, of it? Yeah, I think everybody had to feel comfortable having the kind of conversations we were having and working on something together. And there were tense moments where people totally disagreed and unless you have some sort of rapport, I think, or mm. having had chats with those people before, it can be difficult. Like if you just invite a researcher in or a team member in just for that one conversation and then the way they speak and the way, right. like it was helpful to have everyone kind of be an understanding. But also I do think the key part, to be fair though, is the way that the lived experience advisors feel. And I just think that's like somewhat just an ethical or moral onus, which is, here are people who are coming and talking about something very personal. And that was the other part to me, like, is it, it's not benign if you don't do this well. And we've talked about this on mm -hmm. the podcast. 
Uh, and so that was always weighing on me, which is like, it'd be one thing if like, we just got to get the task done and like everyone feels fine about it. But I didn't want to sit with like, yeah, but they might feel okay. But I know that they just came to that meeting and told a very, very personal story about something that happened to them or their own health issues. And I know from my own experience, they're going to leave and have to sit with that. And the other people there didn't share anything. And I did feel that part of my task was to be like, no, I'm going to try to think about this a bit outside of that little box of churn mm-hmm. out an impact. Because part of the reason I think it makes it sustainable is to consider those kinds of things, I guess. Um, and I think I talked about it last time you talked to me a bit, which was there was a sense that um, I had not fulfilled my purpose because <laughs> the lived experience advisors didn't feel that level of of like care about it. They actually felt like we shouldn't be at every meeting. Like, no, I think there are certain things we should be involved in and other things we shouldn't be. And the they're the experts. We're not. Like even Michael says, you know, I wouldn't think that just because I said something, it should be incorporated. Like they had a very distinct type of advisor perspective, which isn't my experience with all of the patient advisors I've worked with. And I somehow felt like that was a failing on my part. Like I hadn't totally explained like why we were aiming for partnership and why people were supposed to all feel equal and kind of feel the need to be compensated because, and and it wasn't supposed to just be like, I want to give back. Like it's supposed to be because like you have an expertise here. And as much as I was questioning those things myself, whether those were true, it did feel like it was something in my role that I was supposed to instill. How do, how do you think you formulated that expectation for yourself? Because it, it probably didn't come from Noah, right? No, I think because of the way that mandates for patient engagement are described mm-hmm. in terms of how patients are supposed to be involved at every level and they're supposed to be partners and it's not supposed to be that you always defer to the researchers or they are more expert or, you know, as Barbara sometimes said, you know, we shouldn't even, we shouldn't be paid because like we're supposed to be arm's length. We're supposed to not be, mm-hmm. you know, kind of part of the team in that way. And that is not generally how, you know, true partnership or having patients on the team is described. The caveat there being you are supposed to take your lead from the patients themselves or the people themselves. But at the same time, it's still supposed to be that I think that somebody there is at that level that even if you have people at that different different you have differing levels but somebody is a partner (laughs) what if what if that and the argument could have been me you right right and I think that's how it was framed in the grant proposal and in a sense or I was like the lead lived experience advisor but then again like my role was not really to do much of that and you know to be honest Part of that was because I felt uncomfortable being an advisor, a lived experience advisor, a patient partner. And I think that was because of my own questioning of whether we should have things like, like whether being a patient partner, and particularly me, and it's going to sound self-righteous or what, but, what, but like me in my own position, knowing who I knew to get on that project and how I was brought on, that I would be a patient partner on a project for people with opioid use disorder and antibiotic stuff where I have taken opioids. I have a total hip replacement. Like I've, uh, I have ex- a lot of experience with antibiotics because of that actually. And because I also have a kid, uh, but it, you know, I certainly have a certain level of knowledge of the research and the team and the people and uh, was asked because, you know, I was already connected to Noah and my role was not going to be, you know, sitting there and, and sharing my experience to form the patient perspective, it was going to be to like, so it did feel wrong to be called that. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think some would disagree that that's what I was. Yeah. Would, would you do it again? A project like if Noah said, Hey, I know, I know we're no, 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 not even a question. <laughs> I would take on a slightly different role. Like I would, I would just wouldn't facilitate it. But I'd be happy to like talk about his plans for engagement or look strategically at something, but I wouldn't facilitate it. If another researcher said, okay, I get it. It's not going to be you, but how can I be a better PI for the next one that comes along? How can I better set this up so that we do a better job of either supporting the facilitator or supporting the LEAs? What would you do? You, do you have any initial thoughts on what you would say to a researcher who's trying to 
learn from this? I do think it's so contextual, which is a bit of an out for the question. But I mean, one thing that's really tricky is I think the infrastructure and general limitations of sort of funding and like payment options and creativity that you can do within how you might want to do something are just so limited by the bureaucracy or the system that you work in. So it's not a lot of necessarily what I would say to Noah, but sometimes it's like, can you change the finance department so that you could pay this way or mm. so that you got more involvement, like you could pay people before they, while they're doing the grant proposal. Cause I do think having had more thoughtful time to connect with other organizations about engagement work they were already doing along the same lines or what mm. they knew and who, which communities were kind of working on something similar, interested in something similar so that we didn't necessarily have patient partners, but we had like partner organizations or people with a similar interest who had interested people as opposed to like going and finding individuals who, you know, would be on the project. I think I, but that takes a lot of foresight and a lot of pre-planning. And so that's difficult. I understand from a PI point of view. And, and I think the other reality is, is just to not have to, to bring the bar down a little in terms of projects that are instigated and uh, conceptualized by, you know, pretty hardcore formal researchers mm-hmm. to be like all patient centered and to be like partnered. And, you know, I think Noah, says it well when he talks about explains it well when he talks about you know this is a physician facing project about something like implementation science and Celia talks about the complexity of behavior change theories and all of these things and I do think some things lend themselves to really clearly having a partnered person who's been advocating for something or who has a shared interest and has a and then you know feeling like well we need patience on this project because it's a four project mm-hmm. um so I think I would have been a bit more thoughtful going in. And, and I, I won't pretend that I didn't have any involvement in the grant stuff either. I think, you know, the par- partners were involved already, patient partners. But I did think try to think through where we would involve patients. And I think where I thought we would involve patients also got completely changed because just the nature of the project totally changed. So I had a lot more thoughts. We had a lot more thoughts about just doing like sort of focus groups or mm-hmm. having interviews. And that's where I feel like there is a lot of benefit or there is a lot of ability to learn from a much broader group of people. And so I felt good about that, but then that wasn't able to happen. So, you know, part of it with that, we had to rely heavily on these patient partners in a way that I don't think any of us had intended as the sole way of getting input. I think that was part of Noah's reflection too, towards the end when he said something about it might have, might have made more sense even in this project to have our consultations or something well to have different sets of stakeholders involved at different times and mm-hmm. to just convene people as needed like if you need feedback on something get feedback on something yeah but that wouldn't have got you the grant either well that's a good note to end on seems like most of our episodes end in a sort of catch-22 our hope is that you may have heard some thoughts or perspectives to help inform your next research project Or maybe what you've heard has shed some light on previous collaborations. Either way, it's always worth considering how different people on the same project team reflect on their experiences. There can be a lot to learn. Thanks so much to everyone who appeared on this episode. Noah, Celia, Barbara, Michael, and Emily. The interviewees also want to recognize the important contributions of the many others that made this research project possible. In particular, Michelle Simeone, who was integral to the engagement work. This episode was written and produced by Jennifer Johannesson and Emily Nicholas Angle. Funding support was provided by the featured research project led by Dr. Noah Ivers. For more information, or if you just want to get in touch, please visit our website at mattersofengagement.com. <laughs>